Good morning. While you are standing, and all those at home and those, our friends on Facebook, good morning, welcome. So, good morning everyone, those on Facebook joining us this morning, those at home joining us on the live stream, welcome. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to read Matthew 24, verses 15 through 27. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Jerusalem flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down and take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So Lord, we just pray as we dig into your word this morning, that you... I pray that it gives us a sense of urgency to share your word, to share the gospel message with all the people that we encounter. We ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So, we're in a series titled, Are We Living in the Last Days? Are We the Final Generation? Are, we're living in a time when people are scared. They're scared about their future. Many people lost their jobs. Many people are out of work and without an income until their workplace reopens. Kids are out of school, and that's probably the scariest thing of all. They may be out of school till the end of the year. There's confusion. There's mass hysteria over a virus that has captured the attention of the world. Unprecedented measures have been taken to close all non-life-sustaining businesses in a number of states so far. Bars, restaurants, movie theaters, gyms have also closed. Some states, like California and recently New Jersey and Connecticut, are under shelter-in-place orders. And I'm certain there are more states to follow. So when this is all over, we will be living in a different era. Do you remember waking up the morning after 9-11? We were living in a different era. And when this COVID-19 ends, and it will end, we will be living in a different era, a different world. Things are going to change. And some of those changes are already happening. Some of those changes are good changes. 
Families are spending more time together. They're actually finding creative ways to spend time together. People are focusing on something other than work and where to go to have a good time. And hopefully, prayerfully, this crisis was going to cause many to realize their need to get their lives right with the Lord. And I pray that all this downtime people have right now, they're using it to get close to the Lord, to seek the Lord. But listen, it's also a time for us as Christians to let our light shine even brighter than before. To be encouraging people, to share the love of Christ with people. Listen, what we're seeing all around us worldwide, we know will get only worse as the time draws near for the Lord's return. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives that day, he gave his disciples signs. Signs that would herald his return. Signs that would grow in intensity and frequency the closer it came for him to return to this earth to rule and reign. And we've been looking at those signs in this series. We've been asking ourselves, are we living in the last days? Are we truly the last generation? And I pray that as we go through this series, which, is going to begin, which has begun in Matthew 24 and will culminate in Revelation, that once we're done, you'll have a better understanding to the answer to those questions. However, before all of that happens, we know that there will be, in the last days, a new world order, a new world economy, a new world government, a new world religion, and a one world leader. We know it's coming. Matter of fact, we're beginning to see the doors opening for something like that, aren't we? What we're seeing around us right now is how easy it will be for one world leader to come upon the scene. And Jesus goes on to say that that is one of the signs, one of the signals that his return is near. The sign will happen once the temple is rebuilt. The Antichrist, this one world leader, who's risen to power in the last days, who's come upon a world that already has a one-world government, a one-world religion, a one-world economy, and he enters into this temple that he helps get established, and he desecrates it. Jesus tells his disciples that people living in those days, in the last days during the tribulation, will see, as the Antichrist desecrates the temple, will see that this has happened before. Jesus warns us. What they're going to see in those last days has happened before. It's not the first time it's happened. So Matthew 24, 15, Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Jesus said, whoever reads this, let him understand. What I believe Jesus is telling us to understand is that this has happened before. There, there's, a, there's, there's a precedent for this. There's something to compare this to. And then he gives us some clues to help us understand what the abomination of desolation is, how it happens, and who is responsible for it. So before we dig into this, let's look at those two words, abomination and desolation. Abomination means a foul, detestable thing. And desolation means making desolate making something barren, making it unfit for habitation or use. So Jesus says that the sign to look for is that a foul, detestable thing happens and it renders something unfit for use. What thing? Well, that thing is the holy temple. 
wait a minute. That should cause some of you to say, hey, hold on here a minute. Wait, something's up. What Jesus is talking about is going to happen in the last days during the tribulation, right? And if we believe that we're getting closer and closer to that day, where's the temple? Currently, there is no temple in Jerusalem. So I want you to listen very clearly to what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that in the last days, there will be a temple in Jerusalem. It's not there yet, but in the last days, it will be there. The problem with the temple being rebuilt currently is the fact that the Alaska Mosque, the Dome of the Rocks, sits on the very spot where they believe Herod's temple sat. Or is it? Today there's a group in Israel who are actively seeking to rebuild the temple and to resume temple sacrifices. When we went to Israel, many of us got to go through the museum there, the Temple Mount Museum, and witnessed firsthand their efforts to rebuild the temple. So how is it going to be rebuilt? Some scholars believe that the Antichrist will have a hand in this, that he'll negotiate an existing peace treaty very similar, or maybe maybe even the current Middle East peace plan we have in place. And he's going to allow, that this peace plan, this treaty is going to allow for this temple to be rebuilt. But then he's going to enter the temple, three and a half years into this, and desecrate it. So no one knows exactly for sure when this will happen, when the temple will be rebuilt. We just simply know that Jesus said it will be there, so we know it will be rebuilt during this period. There's measurements for this temple. God gave his people exact measurements where the temple would stand. Revelation 11 verses 1 through 2 tell us, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But, and here's the key, leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. The court that is to be left out of the measurement is the court of the Gentiles. So that means the temple itself will stand outside of that court. Now many believe that the temple could be rebuilt today alongside the Dome of the Rock, leaving out the court of the Gentiles. How amazing is that? Now, the only reason they would want to rebuild the temple is to reinstitute, reinstate sacrifices. And there's so many things wrong with that. Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient. It was the only sacrifice needed for the remission of sins. In fact, the author of Hebrews says, So Christ was offered once, once, to bear the sin of many. Hebrews 9.28 Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. His reason for coming, to become the sacrifice for the remission of mankind's sin, was finished once and for all. So there's no further need for sacrifices for the sins of man. Jesus paid for all the sins of mankind, past, present, and future. But as we sit here this morning, as we watch on Facebook, as we watch in our living rooms on live stream, There's a group called the Temple Mount Society, which is busy making the implements and furniture needed for temple sacrifices. They're using the very plans that God gave us in Scripture 
to remake all of these implements. I want you to listen to the Temple Mount Institute's mission statement. The Temple Mount Institute is dedicated to every aspect of the Holy Temple of Jerusalem and the central role it fulfilled and will once again fulfill. Did you catch that? In the spiritual well-being of both Israel and all the nations of the world, the Institute's work touches upon the history of the Holy Temple's past, an understanding of the present day, and the divine promise of Israel's future. The Institute's activities include education, research, and development. The Temple Institute's ultimate goal is to see Israel rebuild the Holy Temple on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem in accord with the biblical commandments. So their goal is to see a temple standing in Jerusalem and temple sacrifices reinstated. So we know, not because the Temple Institute says, but because Jesus says that there will be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem in the last days. And we know that the Antichrist enters this temple, defiles it, and then the last three and a half years of the tribulation begin. Three and a half years of what Jesus describes as the most terrible time on earth. So the next clue that Jesus gives us is that it was spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So what's going to happen is that the Antichrist enters this rebuilt temple and he'll set up some sort of image or representative of an image of the beast, which will be the abomination. And he's going to deceive the world into worshiping it. Revelation 13, 14 says, And he deceives those who dwell on the face of the earth by those signs which he has granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. So he's going to set up an abomination in the Holy of Holies in a place that is accessible only to the high priest. And this abomination set up is going to defile the temple. It's going to make it unfit for use. And Jesus says, when you see these events unfolding, when you see them unfolding in the temple, as Daniel has described, flee to the mountains. Because this event will set off the last three and a half years of the tribulation, and the Antichrist will begin a reign of terror against God's people. Jesus tells us that this has happened before, and that we should read and understand what Daniel the prophet has to say about this past event. So, Everything that the people who are living in that day will see, when they see it, they will know with certainty that the return of Jesus is near. Listen, as Christians, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, as followers of Christ, we don't know the day or the hour that we will be raptured, that Jesus will come for his church. But people living in this time will absolutely know, if they knew the Bible, if they've heard anything about it, that once they see the desecration of the temple, they know that three and a half years from that point, Jesus will return to rule and reign on this earth. So what's that going to look like for the people on the earth while this is going on? Well, Daniel describes, describes it for us, and that's why Jesus says, go back to Daniel, look at Daniel, and understand the words of Daniel. He calls this person who enters the temple vile. This person, we're going to learn, is named Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes, without going through a whole lot of history, because I know how much everybody loves history, 
He comes to power after Alexander the Great dies. So listen to how Daniel describes him. And in his place shall arise a vile person, to whom they will not give the honor of royalty. But he shall come in peaceably, and here's the key, and seize the kingdom by intrigue. With the force of a flood they shall be swept away from before him and, and, be, he, and be broken. And also the prince of the covenant, and after the, the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. So this vile one, Antiochus Epiphanes, who ruled the Seleucid Empire, and I'm going to give you a date. I know you guys love dates also. 164 B.C. Comes against Jerusalem with a Syrian army, much like Rome would do in 70 A.D., and he occupies Jerusalem. He does more than that, which you'll learn here in a second. So listen to what Daniel says closely. He, he comes in peaceably at first. He comes in with a peace treaty in place. He takes the... He takes the world by intrigue, meaning he has charisma. He's making all these empty promises. People just love him. They, they love the sound of his voice. They, they're enamored by the promises that he's making. And then Daniel says he acts deceitfully afterwards. All those empty promises, all the things he's promised everybody, everything he says he's going to do, he turns his back on it and his true colors come out. And the evil that is inside of him is revealed. So Daniel describes what happens next. And forces must be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Daniel's talking about an event that happened in 164 B.C. Daniel's prophesizing this event. But he's also describing what's going to happen during the tribulation when the Antichrist does something very, very similar. Antiochus Epiphanes enters the temple and he desecrates it by sacrificing a pig on the altar and then sprinkling the blood of the pig all over the place. Now, if you want to do a little research into this, you can read First and Second Maccabees because the history of this is described there. He orders the Jews to stop worshiping. And he places in the Holy of Holies, in the holy place, an abomination of desolation. He places an idol... He places an image of Zeus in the holy place. So he stops all sacrifices in the temple, and anyone dis discovered observing the Sabbath is put to death. And it's during this time when he's ruling over, well, actually trying to destroy Jerusalem and wipe out the Jews, a group of men rise up who would eventually drive him and his army out of Jerusalem, and they're called the Maccabees, which means the hammer of God. Now the Maccabees had a much smaller, poorly trained, ill-equipped army to go against this much larger, very well-trained and very well-equipped army. But they had an advantage that Antiochus Epiphanes and his Syrian soldiers didn't have. They had the God of heaven and earth on their side. And so with God's help, they were able to defeat this much larger army. And the defilement of the city and the temple lasted 2,300 days, just as Daniel prophesied it would in Daniel 8.14. So when the Maccabees now enter into Jerusalem, they're horrified by what they see. They see a city in ruins. They see a temple defiled and desolate. And they see an altar that's been desecrated and rendered completely unusable. 
This small army who fought so valiantly to recapture the city now lay down their swords, and they start repairing and cleaning the sacred vessels. The altar was so badly defiled that they couldn't use it, so they had to dismantle it and rebuild another one in its place. So the temple's cleaned, it's renovated, and then on the 25th of Chislev, 165 B.C., they dedicate the temple. This day is known as the Feast of Dedication, or more commonly known as Hanukkah. And Jesus tells us, just like it happened in Jerusalem under Antiochus Epiphanes, it will happen again under the Antichrist. And then he says, it's that time when it's time to leave the city, when it's time to get out. Look at Matthew 24, verse 16. Then let those who are in Jerusalem flee to the mountains. Let him who was on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who was in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. So Jesus says, when you see this abomination of desolation, when you see the Antichrist enter the temple, when you see him do what he's going to do, the time to get out of city, out of Dodge, is now. How does everyone see this? This is something that wasn't possible not all that long ago. It's only through the advent of, the advent of CNN and other news stations like that who carry live news that this will be possible for so many people to see this happen right before their very eyes and he says once you see it flee if you're on the housetop which people still do in israel they still go to the top of their houses to to enjoy the the cooler weather at night get out don't even go back in for your clothes just get out woe to those who are pregnant woe to those who are nursing babies in those days and listen any parent of a young child who has to get that child ready for church, knows that that just doesn't happen quickly. It's, it, you, need, you do need a minivan to travel with a child nowadays because you have to take half your house with you when you leave. He says, get out. Pray that it's not in the winter or on the Sabbath because you don't want anything hindering you from leaving the city because what's going to happen next is going to happen quickly, which tells me that what's going to happen next is already in place. He doesn't just enter the temple and then things start falling apart, he's already got a plan to do what he's going to do next in place for when he does enter the temple. And Jesus warns the Jewish people, and we looked at this last week, that we believe they flee to Petra, the stone mountain, and that's where they, the stone, the mountain city, and that's where they hang out for the next three and a half years of the tribulation. Jesus tells them to flee because Satan is going to unleash his wrath upon God's elect and upon God's people. Look at verse 21 and 22. For then there will be such a great tribulation, such as not been seen since the beginning of the world, until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. I pray now for shortened work days, but... It hasn't happened. Now, I don't want you to miss the urgency in Jesus' voice. I don't want you to miss how brokenhearted he is over the horror that he knows is going to grip this entire world. 
What we're seeing now, the fear that people have now, is nothing compared to the fear that they're going to experience during this time. Jesus warns that there's going to be great tribulation, suffering on a level that has not ever been seen up until this point. Now that word tribulation means oppressing together. It means distress, trouble, suffering. Luke says men's hearts will fail them for fear. And the expectation of things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Luke 21, 26. And unless those days are shortened, no flesh on earth would survive. But those days are shortened for the sake of the elect. So who are the elect? Well, in this context, it's Israel. Listen to these verses. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not yet known me. Isaiah 45, 4. They shall not build another and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the day of the tree, so shall be the days of my people, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands, Isaiah 65, 22. God said that he would set them apart. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of, to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all people, Deuteronomy 7 verses 6 through 7. So throughout the Bible, we are told that the remnant has always survived in Israel and turned back to God and turned from their wicked ways. There's always been a remnant. And in the end, Jewish believers who go through the tribulation along with the tribulation saints, those who give their heart to Christ after the rapture of the church, will be a remnant. They're going to repent of their sin. They're going to turn to Jesus. They're going to be the elect. Remember, the greatest sin, the only sin that cannot be forgiven, is the rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So this last remnant of Jewish people, the elect, and the tribulation saints will give their life to Christ, and many of them will lose their life to follow him during this time. Look at verse 24 and 26. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Many will be deceived in a false messiah, or false messiahs, plural. Why are they deceived? How can they be deceived? Because they simply don't know the real Messiah. They haven't taken time to know the real Messiah. If they had, they would have discovered a Savior, a Savior who would willingly gave his life so that they could have eternal life, a Savior who loved us while we were still sinners and then died for those sins. Jesus tells us that this deception is going to be throughout the world, and it's going to be at a time when spiritual deception was at the greatest height, a time where, if it was possible, that even the elect could be deceived by this. Even the Jewish people could be deceived by this. Remember, 
For Jews request a sign, right? And Greeks seek after wisdom, 1 Corinthians 1.22. The Jewish people sought a sign for their Messiah. They thought the sign of their Messiah, the one who would be the true Messiah, would be the one who would come and rescue them from Roman opposition. They were looking for a Messiah to give them victory over Rome. The Greeks, the Gentiles, sought wisdom. They couldn't understand why one man would want to sacrifice his life for a multitude of sinners. It just didn't make any sense to them. Not much has changed over the centuries, has it? It's been over 2,000 years since Jesus gave his life on the cross, and man still seek leaders to give them victory. Men still will not believe that, yes, one man, one man would willingly give his life for the life of others. That one man, God, would become man, would become flesh, and die for the sins of mankind. Mankind, even today, has chosen to believe a lie. And in the last days, this deception, these lies will be even greater than they are today. But we know from the word of God that the elect, the Jewish people, will come to know the truth. They will come to know that they've been deceived. They will come to know that this Antichrist, this false Christ, is not the Messiah that they've been expecting. And they will know it because they know that the real Messiah would never do what this false Messiah is doing. But this isn't just happening in Israel. This is a worldwide event. Notice the deceivers are saying, come out into the desert, come out into the wilderness. The Christ is there. People have been separated from God and his word for so long that they've been in this spiritual wilderness They've been there for so long that they never recognize Jesus as the true Messiah. So when false Christs come along, people are going to believe anything and everything they hear spiritually because they're still in a state of wilderness. People are going to get called into the back rooms, and they're going to say, listen, the Messiah is here. They're going to be called into the rooms with the promise of seeing the, the Savior, the Christ. Jesus isn't coming in the back door. When he returns, everyone who is in heaven, everyone on the earth and everyone under the earth will see him in all his glory and they will bow their knee to him, Philippians 2.10. Listen, if your Christ is in the back room, what type of salvation are you seeking? So many have sought salvation, or I guess I could use a word that the world uses, escape, by every means possible, seeking and searching for something or someone to set them free. But in reality, what they've searched to set them free has actually enslaved them. There is only one true Savior. There is only one salvation, and that comes through Christ Jesus, whom the Son has set free is free indeed. But even there, the scales will one day fall from the eyes of the Jewish people and they will see Jesus as the Messiah. There will come a time when the scales will fall from the eyes of all those who maybe you're witnessing to right now, and they will see Jesus as their Savior. And those who have their eyes opened, even in this time, those who have been walking in such darkness, especially the darkness in this period, will finally be able to see the light. But think about this. Those who have been walking in the darkest the longest, those who are going to see such dark times, times much darker than we're seeing now, are going to appreciate that light even more. Those who have been given more 
tend to realize the enormity of their sin and the greatness of God's love for them. So there's a special sweetness. There's a special sweetness in the salvation of somebody who's been walking in darkness for so long to have their eyes open to the light. And listen, when your eyes are open to the light for the first time, when someone who's been walking in darkness for so long comes into the light, everything around you gets illuminated. You can see the deception. You can see your own sin clearer than you ever could before. And you can also see the darkness in the world around you, just like we're seeing now. Our eyes have been open. We've seen the light. We know what the light is. We know what the light's all about, and so we can see our sin as we bring it into that light so the Lord can just help us get rid of it. We see the darkness around us. We see it all. And can you imagine walking in such darkness then, and the light finally comes upon them? How much more so they'll see the light and appreciate it. There's going to be a time when this whole world is in spiritual darkness. A time not too much unlike the time we live in. But that darkness is going to continue to grow. And sadly for many, they will never come into the light. The deception will be so great and they'll believe so easily that they won't realize, they won't even realize that they have scales in their eyes. They won't realize that the darkness is preventing them from seeing the true light. Remember, Lucifer was an angel of light. Sin and deception doesn't always come to us with horns and a pointy tail. Sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes it's disguised as light. Sometimes it looks good from the outside. But on the inside, it's still sin and it's still deception. And in the last days, that sin, that deception will abound even more, if you can believe it, than it does today. And in our last verse, verse 27 says, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Listen, Jesus isn't coming this next time in secret. And I want you to understand something if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. The rapture and the second coming of Christ are two separate events. And as we go through the book of Revelation, we'll talk about both of them. They are two separate events. As believers, we believe the next thing to happen for us is the rapture. But for those who haven't seen the light yet, the next time they will see Jesus Christ is at the second coming, when the whole world will see Jesus Christ. He won't come in secret that time. He won't be in the wilderness, and he will not be in the back rooms. Everyone who's on this earth at that time will see him return with his bride to rule and reign on this earth. And it will come suddenly. It will be just as a, a light of a flashing light of lightning. You know, you ever stand outside and you see the lightning just flash? It happens that quickly. That's how quickly it's going to happen when Jesus returns. I mean, every inhabitant of this earth will see him. Jewish believers will look upon him with sadness and sorrow and, 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 and broken hearts as they gaze upon the one whom they pierced. The world whose eyes were blinded by the deception, not because they were tricked, but because they chose to believe in a lie. They chose to not want to know the truth. They didn't want the light. They didn't want a new life in Jesus Christ. They will look up and see the way, the truth, and the life coming in all his glory with his saints, the church. They will see the Savior of the world coming to rule and reign. They'll see the light of the world coming to dispel the darkness. 
They'll see the truth of the word coming to put an end to the deception. And they'll see the life of the world coming in judgment. And those who have rejected him all of their life will face eternal separation from him. So how do we apply the word today? How do we apply this to our our lives? Well, just like the rest of the world that's in a spiritual wilderness, sometimes, sometimes, followers of Jesus Christ can find themselves in that same wilderness, can't we? When we're in the wilderness, and that simply means we've gotten separated. We've gotten separated from God somehow. And when we're in that wilderness, it gets harder and harder and harder to hear his voice, doesn't it? I mean, the further you get away from wherever your base was, the harder it is to hear, isn't it? You know, driving to work in a blizzard, because if you work for the railroad, that's what you do. You drive to work in blizzards. At some point, you look up and you realize... I'm the only crazy person on the road today. And you're driving along, and you, and you realize you're, you're the only one out there, and there's this feeling of loneliness, like you're in the wilderness, and that's only heightened by all the snow swirling around you, right? Being in the wilderness spiritually is just like that. You're going along in your life. You're, you're doing your own thing. And one day you look around, and you realize you've strayed. You've strayed. You've been drifting all of this time. You've been drifting further and further and further from God. You've been doing your own thing, but you're not doing what the Lord's called you to do. The cares of this world and the everyday life is taking your focus off of God, and all you can see is the cares of this world just swirling around you. And you find yourself in a spiritual wilderness. And let me just say this. You didn't just get up one morning and walk out the door and step into a wilderness, did you? That happened over time. Did you know that if you're following a course and you start out and you're just one degree off course, just one, that over time, that one degree equals one mile. So over time, if you continue on that same course, you wind up being hundreds and hundreds of miles off course. Getting off the path of God starts a very similar way. It starts small. Stop praying. Stop studying the word of God. Something every pastor, I pray every pastor across this nation has been drumming into people's heads for years. But that's how it starts. You may not see the difference right away. But the longer you neglect prayer, the longer you neglect the study of his word, the further and further and further away you're going to drift from him. And one day you're going to look up and realize that you've been walking without him. You've been doing this all in your own strength. Listen, the time and the days that we're living in right now, this is not the time to be in the wilderness. It's not the time to be doing things in our own strength. God has sent, I believe, a wake-up call to his church. He's calling his followers out. He's saying it's time to get to work. It's time to get busy. It's time to be about your father's business. Listen, there's plenty of books out there that'll tell you how to follow God, how to experience Him in your life. Bookshelves are full of them. That's the backdoor approach to Jesus. You know how to get out of the wilderness? It's easy. It's not through the back door. It's through prayer and the study of God's Word. That is the only thing that does it. That, there's nothing else that takes the place of those staples of faith. That's why we preach it Every Sunday. Amen? And the second application is do not be deceived. Jesus talks about a time when the 
deception is going to be rampant on this earth. And we see how easy that could happen just with the example of this virus. Fear has replaced faith. And in fear, people are willing to believe anything and everything. For instance, recently a friend of mine sent me a message that the coronavirus hates the heat. So if you take a spray bottle of water and you mist your face, your sinuses, while you use a blow dryer on your face, that warm, moist water will kill the virus. And so I text them back and I said, well, doesn't putting your face over a pot of boiling hot water and a towel over your head do the same thing? It turns out that this does not kill the virus, which was good news for me because I haven't owned a hairdryer for over 40 years. <laughs> Gargling with warm salt water kills the virus. It might help you if you have a sore throat, but it won't kill the virus. Gas pumps is the latest one. Have you gotten those text messages yet? Do not touch the gas pumps because they're filled with coronavirus. Listen, <laughs> it, it cracks me up. So you can use a glove or a, hand, a towel to use your gas pump to pump gas in your car at Wawa, but then throw that in the garbage and go open the door with your hand. It's on surfaces, right? That's what we're told. Same as, are you ready for this? Same as the flu. Nurses and doctors have been telling us for years, wash your hands and cover your mouth and your nose when you sneeze and cough. Haven't they been telling us that for years? Well, come, it's true, I guess. <laughs> it's not airborne. You can't breathe it in. However, if I sneeze or I cough, it is in droplets, and you can catch it. That's why we're six feet, we're, so, we're practicing social distancing, right, six feet apart, because of those droplets. It's the same as the flu every year. You're supposed to be doing these things this time of year anyway. And if you're washing your hands, and God only knows why you need 500 bottles of sanitizer in your house to do that, but if you're, please donate those bottles, by the way, if you have them. There's people who could use them. If you're washing your hands regularly and, and just using common sense measures that you would use during flu season, your chances of contracting this virus are drastically lowered. There's been rumors all over the social media about there being no food, that they're going to cut off our food supplies. Not true. There's rumors all over social media that the president's going to enact the Stafford law, which is martial law. Any of you get the text messages that say, well, first of all, it starts out a friend of a friend of a friend who's in the military said that um, they're going initi to initiate martial law and you're not going to be able to leave your house, you're going to starve to death, and you're just going to find bones. You know, four months from now, it's just going to be your skeleton on the couch. It's not true. President Trump, in fact, said the other day in a live briefing that he had, someone asked him, are your intentions of shutting down the entire nation? And he said, no, because there are states in the nation who aren't experiencing the same level of this virus that other states are. So it wouldn't be prudent to shut the whole country down. But he did say that state by state would evaluate their situations. And governors of certain states have issued shelter-in-place orders like California and New Jersey. So what does that look like? My daughter lives in California. She's allowed to get in her car. She's allowed to drive to the food store. 
She's allowed to go to the doctors and to the pharmacy, and she's allowed to walk around her neighborhood. They're not allowed to just get in their car and go to Miami and celebrate spring break. They're just not allowed to do that. They have to start getting serious about this. In New Jersey this weekend, the governor just issued a shelter-in-place order very similar to California. He's allowing daycares to be left open the same as they are in California. He's allowed essential personnel to go to work the same as in California. What they're saying, what the CDC is saying is, listen, just wash your hands. Don't touch your face and your nose. Wash your hands. It's simple. Learn the facts. If you want to know the facts about this virus, go on the CDC website. If you want to know the facts about what your state's doing, go on your state's government webpage and find out. Be informed. Don't be deceived. So that's the deception going on all over the place. And there's more. Some of them are pretty comical. But there's also spiritual deception out there. My pastor put out some major questions that the body in Oldbridge are asking. Is this virus a judgment of God upon the world? The answer is, in the last days, Jesus said, as his time was drawing closer for his return, that disease and sickness, natural disasters like earthquakes in various places, hatred towards others, and wars would continue to grow in intensity and frequency. That's not judgment. That's the result of living in a fallen world. We're living in a world that's passing away. This world wasn't meant to last forever and ever and ever. Not this world. Judgment is coming upon the world, but it's coming when the great and the small are gathered together at the great white throne judgment. But until then, we still live in a fallen world. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the, in the garden, sin and death entered this world. And Jesus tells us that sin and death will continue to be with us and, and, and even increase in frequency and intensity as his time to return to this world, the rule and reign, draws nearer. The next thing people are wondering, Christians are wondering, is this the end of the world? Jesus said, you will see these things, but the end is not yet. There are things prophetically that must happen before Jesus returns to rule and reign on this earth. Yes, the world is going to be in chaos. There's no doubt about that. We're going to see a one-world economy. There's going to be a one-world religion, a one-world government. It's going to give rise to a one-world leader, the Antichrist. There's going to be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. They haven't even laid the foundation for that yet. There's going to be a third world war with Russia and Turkey and Iran coming against Israel. So what Christians tend to forget is that men, much of this is they're not going to see. They're going to get to watch it from the balcony. We're going to be removed before the seven-year tribulation begins. And as far as I can see, the seven-year tribulation has not begun yet. So it's not the end of the world. Now that's just a very short summary of what's to come, but we're nowhere near the end yet. We're seeing examples of what it's going to look like at the end. And so if we're seeing those examples now, how much closer are we to the return of Jesus Christ for his church? The third question is, are Christians protected from this virus? And they quote Psalm 91. Listen, we're all Christians living in a fallen world. We get cancer. 
We have strokes. We have heart attacks. We die in crashes. We're not exempt from sickness and death. We go through and we suffer the same as the rest of the world. What's different about a Christian is the way we handle sickness and loss. It, when we experience sickness and loss in our life, it's a time for our lights to shine even brighter. And it's a time where others are drawn to that light. It's a time to bring glory and honor to God through our pain and suffering. Amen. And that's one of the lessons we learned in the book of Job. And then fourthly, is this time, is this the time when we obey God rather than man because the government ordered meetings of less than 10 people? So is this the time to rebel? Is this the time to just do what we want to do as Christians? Listen, the closing of the church is for your own protection, and especially for the protection of those who are at greater risk for this. We close the church when the roads are icy. We close the church when the roads are filled with snow for your protection. We wouldn't do anything different with the outbreak of a virus like this. We just want to make a safe environment for everyone. We practice social distancing. For those who are here for the live stream, we wipe everything down. We just use common sense. You know, we were talking about this in men's group yesterday, and which, by the way, was less than 10 people. And um, we, you know, I think Paul said, we have to expect that everyone in this room has this virus. And the simple truth of the matter is that just like the flu, and, and believe me, I'm not comparing this to the flu. I know this is a lot, for most people, it's a little scarier. I'm saying that like the flu, some people get it and never know they have it. Some people get it and have such mild symptoms that they just think it's a cold. And other people get it and they wind up flat on their back for two weeks. And then, sadly, there are those who die from it. This is not any different than that. Just continue to wash your hands, continue to cover your mouth and your nose, preferably not with your hands, and continue to practice social distancing, and we should survive this. Listen, here's the main thing. Look at what happened. Look at what has happened as a result of this virus. Idols have been toppled over. Sports idols, movie idols, entertainment idols, financial idols, fitness idols, even church idols. Yeah, the church can become an idol. It can become an idol when we're more focused on the building we go to and the programs that we have when the simple truth of the matter is the church is not a building. It's not a program. It's the people. You and I, we are the church. You know, I love this meme that I found. Most of you have probably seen this by now. Church online is not canceled. Quiet time with God is not canceled. Praying for the sick is not canceled. Helping others is not canceled. Being the church now more than ever. Listen, we know how to do church. What we need now is to be the church. This is not, listen, I'm not saying that the gathering of the saints isn't important because it is. In fact, the author of Hebrews thought it was so important that he said, do not forsake the gathering of the saints, Hebrews 10.25. So when this is over, we need to go back to gathering together as a body. But I hope it's with a new perspective. 
I pray that the church building becomes simply a place where we gather to be edified, renewed, refreshed, and restored to then go out into this lost and dying world and be the church. To be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in the world so desperately in need, especially right now, of the love of Christ. Listen, the building that we go to is just that. It's a building. And it's time that we show the world that the church isn't just the building that we meet at. The church is in us. We are the church. The whole world needs to see what's contained in these earthly vessels because many of the people that we see every day will never step foot in the church, not this church or any church. So if we're the church, they're seeing Jesus Christ through us, amen? And we have a lot to offer, don't we? In these earthen vessels is contained the message of the gospel. In these earthen vessels is contained the fruit of the Spirit and the light of the world. Although sometimes we put that light under the basket. Show people what lives inside of us. Show them the church. Show them that we are the church. Show them that we are the light. That we are the fruit of the Spirit. Because people that we interact with every day may never step foot in a church. Take the light from under the basket and let it shine in the darkness as a beacon to lead those who are in darkness to the light of Jesus Christ. Let them see the fruit of the Spirit in us and they'll want to know more about what makes us different. Now go and be the church. Amen? Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are, for what you've done in our lives. And Lord, I pray that as we go out into this world, as we witness on social media, as we speak to our friends and family on the phone, we live in a world where that's almost the only means of communication we have right now. I pray, Lord, that our lights shine even brighter, even through those platforms and, and mediums, Lord, that you would just do a mighty work in us and through us, and people would see your love, your grace, your mercy through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Mm -hmm.